0: For another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, April 6th, 2010. Oh, man. Too many stories, not enough week. Yeah, it's a short week for me. Let's see what I can do about it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I'm your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment. It's Tuesday, April 6, 2010. And uh, it's uh, spring break for a lot of folks, and I'm going to be taking a couple of days off at the end of the week. I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to cover everything that I need to cover in the short week that I have. Because I don't want to leave you short shrifted, if you would. And so I'm, I'm making some program decisions here. Are you ready? Okay, so here's how this is all going to play out this week. Tomorrow, Today and tomorrow will be normal editions of Fighting for the Faith. I'll actually do a full program tomorrow before I head off uh, you know, for a, a little bit of R&R. I'm, I'm kind of much needed r and R. I'm in one of those kind of funks, if you would. And one of the reasons I'm in a funk is because, yeah, man, I've been reading, studying, and really, trying to understand what it is that we face as a as a, as a church here and um uh, and uh I need a couple of days to kind of just turn my brain off and rest, and so I'm gonna be spending some r and r with my family and uh taking some time off on thursday and friday and uh, what i'm what I'll do then is is that tomorrow will be a full program, and then on Thursday. What I'll do is I'll do my normal Friday light segment. It'll be the uh, it'll be a lecture from Kim Riddlebarger on the doctrine of the rapture, and kind of the biblical problems with that. And so that will be Thursday's program, and then Friday's program will be a true best of, so that rather than missing two days of fighting for the faith, you'll you'll miss you, only one will be missing, and so that's the way to think about it and so uh look forward to that that's how how we're going to roll this week and uh and then take a look here um phew, lots of things to talk about today first of all uh just want to uh mention uh that uh, Michael Spencer the uh, gentleman who runs the blog Internet Monk and uh and he also was a broadcaster here at Pirate Christian Radio he uh died yesterday um, and uh, and the, our, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has seen fit to uh, call him into his presence. And uh, so Michael Spencer, uh, uh, 1956 to 2010, he died on April 5th. Uh, basically, uh, he came down with uh, cancer, and uh, the treatment wasn't going to uh, cut it, and as a result of it, uh, he succumbed yesterday to his cancer. So we pray for his uh, wife and for his uh, children, Um, and yeah, it's, again, truly, truly sad, and uh, we thank God for uh, the ministry that Michael Spencer brought to the internet as well as to uh, uh, podcasting and to the radio, basically challenging evangelical Christian culture in the United States, and um, he he was um, firm... Defender of the truth. So um, again, sad, and uh, we marked the passing of Michael Spencer. Okay, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Real quick, we, yesterday we didn't get a chance to talk about the Crystal Cathedral's financial problems. We're going to talk about that. Um, we're, we got, I got this story from the Christian Post: uh, f- the Archbishop of Canterbury is uh, basically talking about how uh, there's a difference between uh, opposition and persecution. The problem is is that I, I I think that the opposition that Christians are facing in the U.K. is a form of persecution. We'll talk about that here in a minute. Um, and then we're going to talk about the emergent-slash-progressive view of bibl- biblical authority. Uh, there's a book out there by a the, uh, gentleman by the name of Delwyn Brown called What Progressives Believe. And uh, this is worth uh, noting and taking note of. And um, and then if we have time, uh, there's a op-ed piece uh, written by Al Muller on the, uh, the first importance, the cross and the resurrection at the center. Definitely worth uh, uh, reading. And then, you know, I was feeling rather nostalgic. I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, and uh, I can remember the 80s. I can remember when Duran Duran was a brand new... A uh, pop band that all the girls were going gaga over. Um, I can remember you two when uh, they were a bunch of high school kids. I can re, yeah. Um, and uh, boy, I, every time I hear on the radio, and now for some oldies from the '80s, I just want to reach through my uh, radio and g- grab the DJ and just you know rough him up a little bit. But uh, feeling a little nostalgic for the '80s today, and so I decided that uh, I'll be doing a sermon review. Uh, The sermon series is entitled, I Love the 80s. The name of the sermon is The MacGyver Plan. Yeah, you know MacGyver, the guy who could literally make a jet aircraft out of some, uh, basically, uh, toothpicks, uh, two matchbooks, and a a roll of duct tape, um, and escape the enemy every time. The guy who can, uh, you know... You use sunlight, a magnifying glass, and some sodium to make a ex- high explosive to blow through a brick uh, enclosure in order to escape the enemy. A MacGyver, the, the name of the sermon is The MacGyver Plan, and it's Pastor Jeremy Harper from a, what is it, the Village Church in Gilbert, Arizona. Yeah, I think that's, that's it. We'll be, that'll be an hour number two today and then uh, you know real quick before we uh, before we dive into the program proper one of the things I, I wanted to do one uh, quick email so uh, Jill from uh, British Columbia Canada writes and uh, she's got a good question I get this one from time to time and it's worth uh, reviewing here uh, All right, kill the music. Okay, so uh, here's the question. Uh, Chris, what does uh, your logo with the X and the P through it represent? Yeah, logo, by the way, if you've seen the Pirate Christian Radio logo, uh, it's a black uh, flag with a white chi Rho on it. The X is the Greek word for chi, and the P is not a P. That's the Greek letter Rho, R-H-O. And um, basically, it, here's a good way of thinking about it. The Cairo is an ancient symbol. Some of the first, um, the, some of the first uses, documented uses of, we, of the Cairo go back to about the third century A.D. And but um, basically, think of it as a monogram. Uh, yeah, a monogram. See, you ever see somebody with cufflinks with their with their name, their initials on it, you know, um, that's what the Cairo is. It's a Greek monogram and it basically is the first two letters of the Greek word Christos. Okay. Which means Christ or anointed one. And, um, and so the idea behind the Cairo is, uh, that, uh, it basically is, is a monogram for Christ. And, one of the nice things about that particular um, symbol, the Christian symbol, and again, it goes way back in our first – the first recorded instance of it are from the third century AD, is that in some senses it does remind you of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. So it's an interesting monogram, ancient symbol, and uh, I picked it up uh and uh, in, in, in employed it in the uh, logo that we use for Pirate Christian Radio and uh, for Fighting for the Faith, basically, uh, you know, because we're all about Christ. That's what we're all about. We're all about Christ here at Fighting for the Faith. So uh, that's the answer to the question. So, all right. Um, moving along here, now we're going to dive into the program proper. Talked a little bit about this yesterday. A headline reads, Church's financial woes leave Southern California without glory of Easter. Okay, this one chalked that this, I've talked about this before and I'll say it again. Those of you pastors or churchmen out there who are interested in marrying yourselves to relevance. Let me tell you about relevance. Uh, Relevance is like a very, um, how shall I say it, unfaithful woman. Um. Now, I'm not saying women are unfaithful. I'm just saying that relevance is like an unfaithful woman. Um. And think of it this way, is, is that uh, this woman is so ridiculously unfaithful that uh, she basically um, hooks up with, that's the modern parlance nowadays, isn't that? Hooks up with uh, whoever is uh, hip and fashionable now. And uh, the problem is, is that... Um, you know if you want to court um, relevance uh, being that she 's kind of a fickle loose woman um, she 's going to leave you high and dry she 's going to make you feel like you 're on top of the world one moment. But see, that's the thing. She's got this wandering eye and she's going to be looking down the road to see who the next up and coming f- person is. And she's going to leave you and abandon you and go for that person. And so if we understand, um, by the way, the glory of Easter is a, was, a, was a production put on every year during the Easter season, during Lent, uh, by um, the Crystal Cathedral, uh, Robert Schuller. Uh, his outfit. See, the problem is, is that Robert Schuler, he just ain't hip no more. There was a time when Robert Schuler's crystal cathedral was the mega church. And Robert Schuler was the guy who was all about pragmatic relativism. And you know, wouldn't you know what? He was courting relevance and she hung out with him for a while. They hooked up. And uh, the problem though, is, is that, you know, uh, after a while, you know, Schuler wasn't all that relevant. I mean, I mean after all the crystal cathedral still kind of looks churchy it has a spire and a cross and they have pews and an organ and and uh, Robert Schuller still wears vestments and so you know uh, you know relevance was uh, she wasn't satisfied to just stay there and so she's long since moved on and you know the crystal cathedral and their brand of positive christianity just um, well, it's just not appealing to the masses anymore. Even you know, it doesn't matter how many times they invite Mark Driscoll to you know come there and appear on the Hour of Power. They're just not. Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, relevance has moved on. I mean, I mean, it, it, already. I mean, she's already gone. I mean, she she left Robert Schuller and went for Rick Warren and Bill Hybels, and uh, and you know, I think she's already moved on from those guys. I mean, she's moved on to you know Rob Bell and. Joel Osteen and you know Perry Noble and those guys and but see that's the thing about relevance she's really really not a faithful woman and as a result of it you know she's already you know looking down the road looking for the next you know the next big thing and you know Joel Osteen and and um, Rob Bell you know they kind of have that worn in feeling look to him. And you know, we're we're looking for the next big thing. But don't worry, relevance will marry uh uh well hook up with whoever the next big star is on the on the horizon. Don't worry, the I'm sure the Christian publishers and uh and folks like that are are, are looking for that next big thing. And so uh but uh, this, so basically what happens though is is that if you if your church's financial model is tied to um, a long-term relationship with relevance, oh, yeah, that, that's just not going to work. Yeah, see, because um, that's – again, work with me here. Um, These guys who are chasing after relevance, she might actually show some attention to you for a little while. She might actually throw you a bone and, you know, make you feel nice and important and relevant. But, see, the thing is, is that if your church's financial model, you know, the long-term longevity – Uh, financial viability of the business model that you've set up for your church depends upon a monogamous long-term relationship with relevance. Yeah, that's not going to happen. And so this is what's going on over there at uh, the Crystal Cathedral there in Garden Grove, California. Uh, By the way, uh, who wrote this story? Uh, Joshua Goldberg wrote it. Let me read a little bit of this. Normally today would be the last day for Southern California residents to see the glory of Easter at the Crystal Cathedral in Garden Grove. This, by the way, the story was released on Saturday, April 3rd, so it's a couple days old. Uh, For 27 years, the Crystal Cathedral has presented the live stage production chronicling the final week of Jesus' life with the last performance falling on the day before Easter. Well, this year, however, marks the um, first time the production was not held due to a severe economic downturn. Now, you can sit there, you can blame the economy, but the reality is, I'm telling you, the the uh, Crystal Cathedral Hour of Power, yeah, Relevance, she's long since left the building, and uh, they actually created a business model that depends upon a long-term monogamous relationship with mm, Relevance. <sighs> okay, um uh, Robert Schuler, Crystal Cathedral's founder and chairman of the board said, quote, "We remain extremely grateful for the dedicated leadership of Paul and Jean Dun- uh, Dunn and the hundreds of dedicated volunteers." who for 27 consecutive years have faithfully shared in portraying the Passion Week of our Lord. Schuler stated earlier this year in announcing the board's decision, uh, which came after long prayer and deliberation, quote, in my 2009 Christmas Eve message, I shared the sentence, quote, a setback is a setup for a comeback. Oh, good night. <clears throat> that's just a smarmy uh, positive thinking slogan uh, kind of along the lines of what rick warren said on sunday if if god raised jesus from the dead then he can raise your dead dreams <sighs> by the way what is uh, you know i it, i'm going to harp on this for a while now because the, the this whole john piper rick warren thing is really starting to s- sink in and i'm telling you piper's making a huge huge mistake <laughs> The more I think about it, the more I just, I just am aggravated by it. Why? Because every time I want to give Rick Warren the benefit of the doubt, he just doesn't come through with the biblical gospel. And he mixes it with error in such a way that you don't have the truth. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, Doing review on yesterday's edition of Fighting for the Faith, and I just was. Anyway, and so I don't think anything good's gonna come from Rick Warren's appearance, unless of course it leads to his repentance. Because isn't Rick Warren the guy who's all about well, how do you say it? He he was all about deeds, not creeds. But see, here's the problem is is that. Rick Warren, in private, told John Piper that he has orthodox, almost Calvinistic uh, creeds that he subscribes to. Funny enough, though, when it comes to his deeds, um, you know, actually getting up and doing the job of a pastor and proclaiming those creeds, he falls wo- woefully short on a regular basis. How did I get on Rick Warren? Oh, that's right, because Robert Shuler has this stupid, smarmy... A setback is a setup for a comeback. Let me continue. Uh, So we anticipated a positive turnaround in our country as we look forward to the 2010 glory of Christmas and the 2011 glory of Easter. We dedicate ourselves to making that happen, he concluded. More than two months later, the Crystal Cathedral is still facing setbacks. And the latest uh, being three lawsuits um, stating that the Garden Grove megachurch owes them more than two million for services rendered for the cathedral 's glory of christmas program yeah they're they're kind of up on the financial ropes again, the moral of the story here, and let this be a cautionary tale to all of you out there who are thinking that the way you grow the church is to uh, marry yourself to relevance she 's not a faithful lover i 'm just you know pointing that out, and so you've got to be real, real careful that you don't create a business model for your church that assumes a monogamous uh, lifelong relationship with um, relevance. Okay, okay, let's see here. Okay, this one, this uh, is a story that's got me kind of, uh, well, another story from the Christian Post. The headline but uh, f- uh, from Jenna Lyle reads, Opposition, not the same as persecution, says Anglican head. That would be uh, the Roland, Dr. Rowan Williams, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, uh, the spiritual, uh, London, the spiritual head of the worldwide Anglican communion used his Easter sermon Sunday to call upon British Christians to remember what the cross stands for in their life, in their faith. Something tells me that if I were to review Dr. Rowan Williams' Easter sermon, I, I, I think it would be a safe bet. No, no Not that he probably um, uh, couldn't find the biblical gospel and the biblical meaning of the cross if I gave him a map, a flashlight, and a boxing glove. Anyway, um, let's see here. Um, all right, the cross. Okay, all right. so, okay. Uh, uh, British Christians, uh, to remember what the cross stands for in their faith and refrain from equating opposition to their faith to the physical persecution suffering by believers... In other countries. I see. So the growing opposition to the Christian faith isn't the same as the physical persecution and suffering by believers in other countries. Funny enough, doesn't it usually start there? Anyway, uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Rowan, Rowan Williams, said recent disputes over the display of religious symbols could be put down to bureaucratic silliness. At, and yeah we'll tell that to the people who 've lost their jobs'm oh, yeah it, it 's not that you lost your job because of persecution of the Christian faith. it was you, know, you lost your job because of bureaucratic silliness, <laughs> those jokers. adding that the mixture of contempt and fear toward the Christian faith in parts of British society was unjustified. He called upon Christians, however, to keep a sense of proportion whenever they experienced opposition to their faith. Quote, it's not the case that Christians are at risk of their lives or liberties in this country simply for being Christians. Whenever you hear overheated language about this, remember those many, many places where persecution is real and christians are being killed regularly and mercilessly or imprisoned and harassed for the resistance to injustice christians are being harassed for the resistance to injustice yeah like i said i don't think that if we gave dr williams a map a flashlight or a boxing glove that he could find the biblical gospel uh, anyway Ah, uh, boy. Uh, Williams told Christians to remember the suffering of minority Christians in other countries like Nigeria, where hundreds have been murdered by Muslims in recent months, as well as Iraq, Sudan, and Zimbabwe. Quote, we need to keep a sense of perspective and to redouble our prayers and, and concrete support, he said. Uh, you know, got to point this out. Um, in the book of Revelation... There is a prophecy regarding the man of lawlessness, the antichrist, if you would, and uh, the you, you know that whole six 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 prophecy, you know the mark of the beast, that thing. Um, one of the things we learn um, in the book of Revelation is is that when the man of lawlessness, the antichrist, when he appears, um, the the idea is is that. Um, everybody will be forced to worship uh, this beast. And if you don't worship the beast, you're in, well, there's a problem. Uh, so work with me here. The, the The prophecy in the book of Revelation, let's just say for a second that this is alluding to a, a, a literal fulfillment here. I don't want to get into the prophecy uh, game, so to speak but l- let 's just assume for a second that this, this is can be kind of taken a near face value, and when you combine it with like you know other prophecies from Jesus as well as the apostle Paul, what you got is this conglomerate idea that the man of lawlessness comes into power and he, he basically is the uber false christ you mean so much so that he claims to be jesus or the messiah or god or whatever and exalts himself above everything that is that calls itself god and demands that all of humanity throughout the world worships him and uh, not only that that but in order to buy and sell and you know engage in commerce you know such as grocery shopping uh, purchasing of you know dry goods and shelter and paying the rent and you know, stuff like that. That in order to uh, basically enjoy the economy of the world under his reign, you have to um, be uh, worship the beast and be marked with his mark, whatever that thing is. And if you don't, well then you well you can't engage in commerce. We're not going to let you buy or sell or anything of that nature. Um. Uh. Would Doctor, Ro- if let's just say that happened tomorrow, would Doctor Roland Williams be uh, out there basically telling Christians, "Now oh, listen, you know this uh, uh, Mister Mister Lawless Beast Man uh, who demands worship. I mean, he's a godly guy, and you, you fundamentalists out there who refuse to take his mark. I mean, stop saying that you're being persecuted. He's just opposing your faith. Now I understand you can't buy or sell, and you've lost your jobs and all that kind of stuff." But you know, hey, hey! At least he didn't kill you like the Nigerians did uh, the Christian, you know, the Muslim persecutors of the Christian faith in Nigeria. You know, because those rascals—I mean, those guys really let the Christians have it. And so you, you just—you got to stop looking at the opposition of this uh, uh, false Christ as, as as actually being persecution. Yeah, when you put it in that light, it doesn't seem to make a darn bit of sense. Anyway. Something to consider. All right, moving along. You know what we're going to do? Uh, we're going to take our first break. And uh, when we come back, we're going to be taking a look at the emergent view of biblical authority. This ought to be interesting. And uh, and then if we have time, I want to read to you this op-ed piece from uh, Dr. Albert Muller entitled, The First Importance, the Cross, and the Resurrection at the Center. And then in hour number two, Stay tuned. Oh, it's going to be a doozer. We're going to have a an 80s sermon on the MacGyver plan. I mean, because, um, you know, MacGyver is um, I mean, right up there. I mean, MacGyver is like the beardless mullet version of Jesus. So uh, you don't want to miss our sermon review today. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
2: Pythons Flying
0: Circus Church Spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner. And the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare, hotel, and rental car than you need to. That's why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to have Cheapo Air as one of our featured advertisers. Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap we have a promo code that will save you an additional ten dollars off of cheapo airs already low prices so visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap write down the promo code click on the web banner and book your spring or summer travel today and remember a portion of your purchase at cheapo air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is pirate forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Warning, the biblical gospel is not relevant, but it applies to all. So preach it. Don't be ashamed of it. All right, I need to remind you all Fighting for the Faith is listener supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can support us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. That's fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you're going to see two friendly yellow buttons. One says uh, donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, what you're doing is you're signing up to contribute automatically $6.95 every month to Fighting for the Faith. I, that's not a lot of money. It's, uh, it, that's on purpose. And the, the goal here really is to, uh, have a large base of our listeners paying a small amount in order for us to meet our, our needs. It kind of gets everybody, uh, you know, a skin in the game, if you would. And of course, uh, when you join, you also get uh, access to our Pirate Cove. And I've been, I've already begun to release this, uh, the, the next batch of things I've been working on for the Cove. So you don't want to miss out on that. And that, uh, you, and so pay close attention when you sign up because uh, that way you can see the, uh, uh, the button at the very end, you know, to click it there to get the uh, access information to the Cove. And, of course, if you would like to uh, contribute the amount of your choosing, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, one of the things we talk about here at Fighting for the Faith is uh, the emergent church and progressives. Now, keep, th- keep this in mind. I said this yesterday. Um, basically, the emergent church is getting rolled up into the greater progressive movement. And so for the last 10 years, the emergent church has really been kind of the avant-garde uh, wing of the, uh, of the progressive uh, liberal movement. And I want to talk to you today about their view of biblical authority. But before I do that, I've come up with a new theme song for when I discuss progressives and emergence, and uh, I'd like to introduce you to it. Here it is. Does that sound appropriate? Okay, I'm going to be reading. Um, we talk about the emergence and progressives again. The kind of they're, they're converging, if you would. And um, Delwyn Brown has a book. Uh, what does a progressive Christian believe? And um, if you again, this is a very fascinating book. And he has a section in his book about um, biblical authority. I want you to listen carefully to what he says biblical authority is, and you'll notice the similarities between um, uh, his views and, uh, well, how do I put it? Um, uh, 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 Brian McLaren's, uh, let me read here. Okay, some years ago I read a short essay on authority by Hannah Arendt. It offers a historical account of what I could call... The normative view of authority, the view that an authority is a singular standard or norm to which everyone should conform, Arendt found the origins of this concept in the development of centralized political rule among the ancient Greeks. What could be the foundation of such a rule? The Greeks debated this matter and resolved it to, in different ways, but the Romans, who came later, gave it a definitive answer. What can be the foundation of Roman rule? Well, of course, the foundation of Rome itself. Quote, At the heart of Roman politics, Arendt says, stands the conviction of the sacredness of foundation. In the sense that once something has been founded, it remains binding for all future generations. In Rome, religion meant, religiaire, to be tied back, obligated to the legendary effort to lay the foundations, to build the cornerstone, to found for eternity, to be religious, meant to be tied to the past. Arendt adds, quote, The word uh, uh, auctoritas derives from the verb to augment, and what is augmented is the foundation. With the Romans, this legendary foundation gradually was transmuted into a canon, a standard of measurements and rules applicable to all behaviors and beliefs, including those of religion. Early institutional Christianity, Christianity understandably appropriated this Roman view. (laughs) Of authority. <laughs> now, you're sitting there going, huh? this sounds like uh, Brian McLaren's Greco-Roman god Theos. Yeah, it is. But wait, when you hear the conclusion, you're going to realize what's going on here. So stay with me here, okay? <clears throat> Delwyn continues. He says... An authority is a uniform standard to which all under it must conform. The apostles' witness to Jesus became the founding fathers of the church. The church derived its authority from the apostolic witness so long as it conformed to that witness. The dispute among Christians at the time of the Reformation was among Romanized Christians, although they came to different conclusions. Protestants and Catholics alike work with a Roman or normative interpretation of Christianity's founding event now transmuted into a biblical canon. This Roman view of authority is very different from the view at work in the world that gave rise to the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. In this world, each generation treated its authoritative past with respect and with creativity. Stay with me. The prophets, for example, lived from their histories, but they did so innovatively, adapting and sometimes even reversing past interpretations of the Exodus or the wilderness experience in order to meet the needs of the new times. James Sander, a a biblical scholar, has argued that after the exile, Hebraic theologians removed the story of the conquest of of Canaan from what came to be known as the Pentateuch, their fundamental authoritative source. They decided to end the Torah with the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy and not Joshua because the centrality of the promised land no longer worked For them uh, far away from in Babylonian captivity. In the Hebraic traditions, creativity rather than conformity was at work. Tradition was authoritative, but not as a fixed and singular past that must be replicated. Authority did not mean that which authorizes by virtue of being conformed to, it meant something else. What did it mean? Well, the concept of authority is complex in the New Testament. But one meaning is particularly interesting for addressing the question at hand. Jesus, for example, is said to have spoken to the crowds as one having authority or exousia. Basic to the uses of exousia in these passages is the notion of a right and a power to act or to respond creatively. Think back to our April Fool's edition of Fighting for the Faith where I played uh, the folks from uh, audio from uh, from people who were both from Patricia King's uh, loony group, as well as from the emergent progressive group. They sounded identical. Why? Because authority to them is creativity. (sighs) Let's continue. Authority does not command conformity. It commends freedom, according to Delwyn Brown. Authority viewed in this way is not an authorizer, something that uh, uh, specifies unyielding standards to which one must conform. Authority is formative, not normative. Authority is empowerment. Interestingly, this alternative view of authority is preserved for us in the word author. And authority in this alternative is that which authors, that which gives being to forms, empowers, or calls to creativity. Yeah, let me read this example of this. Even literal authors testified to the fact that their creations... Their characters take on a validity of their own. The author gives life to the characters, but these creations are not mere puppets. They take on a life of their own so that in a secondary sense, at least they begin to author themselves. They acquire a measure of autonomy, of self-creation. They even contend against the author who continues to write them, taking the plot in directions that are unanticipated, unanticipated by the one who gave and continues to give them life. The author giving life bestows freedom and and the creatures uh, given life become creative. The Bible is authoritative for progressive Christians because it empowers, not because it confines. The Bible is heated because it forms us, not because it norms us. We read its stories, we listen to its parables, we hear its admonitions, we follow its reasonings, we are taught by its conclusion in our personal lives and in our corporate worship. The Bible is the source out of which we live self-consciously as Christians. As we live into new times, confront new challenges, and address new issues, it authors our Christian identity. Let's continue. Hang with me here for a second. You're going to see what's going on here. The diversity of viewpoints within the Bible, even on important theological matters, does not undermine its authority. On the contrary... It is essential to biblical authority. It is a means through which the Bible teaches us to think for ourselves, to work out our own identity as Christians in new cultures. Biblical diversity is one of the means through which we believe the Spirit of God provokes and inspires us, nourishes and forms us. The very diversity of voices and scriptures empowers us. Therefore, we live continuously in relation to the biblical text because we experience it. Uh, with all of its richness as our formative foundation, the continuing source of our dynamic Christian self-understanding. So in other words, uh, you want to know what the Bible is to a progressive and emergent? You want to know what biblical authority is? Well, biblical authority gives them the empowers them to be creative. That's why you come up with all these absurd ideas and they can't answer a straight theological question because they're exercising their biblical authority to be creative. Now, here's the punch. Here's the kicker. Next paragraph from Delwyn's book. Like the writers within the biblical text, we are always taught by our sacred past, and like them, we are often chastened and corrected by it. As we shall see in later chapters among the diverse voices of Scripture are those that critique our individualistic notions of salvation and condemn our indifference to the rest of creation and challenge our imprisoning free market assumptions. There it is. You see, these guys... What are progressives? Ideologically, they are, I'm going to use that that word again, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you've got to go back and re-listen to a previous edition of Fighting for the Faith where I say that socialism or Marxism comes in another color. Ideologically, progressives and emergents are fascists. There is no separation of church and state, And what they have to do is they are on a quest, a revolution, if you would, to destroy individualism, destroy the capitalist free market. And this is basically there's no separation of church and state in their mind. They they are looking for a new Christianity, a new creative Christianity that doesn't emphasize individual notions of salvation, Delwyn Brown's, and um, and challenges your imprisonment to a free market, so in other words, why are they embracing, quote, "creativity as, authority, as as their view of biblical authority? Because they don't want to be normed by scripture. They hate God's transcendent word and his transcendent laws, and they don't want their behavior to be bound by or held accountable to what God's Word says. Plain and simple. These are very, very dangerous people. And no, I'm sorry, but biblical authority is not how creative you are. It's whether or not you faithfully stick to what God's Word says. Abide in Christ. Let me give you as a counterpoint I'm going to read uh, a few paragraphs from Francis Pieper's uh, Christian Dogmatics. Now, Francis Pieper is a a dead German white Lutheran dogmatician. That's not a popular um, word nowadays, but I think we need some more dogmaticians, if you know what I mean. Let me read to you about uh, theology as doctrine is the name of this chapter, and I'm going to read a few paragraphs since subjective theology is the aptitude to teach no more and no less than God's word as the church of our day possesses in the written word of the apostles and the prophets objective theology theology in the sense of doctrine is more is nothing more and nothing less than the presentation in oral and written form of the doctrine presented in the holy scripture okay so when we're talking about theology, both subjective and objective theology, he's not talking about subjective theology as something that you feel, but uh, the subject of theology and the you know and the object of theology; these are concepts that he he plays out he plays on. But here's the idea: is that a Christian theologian, a Christian pastor, anybody speaking on behalf of the biblical God, um, you teach no more and no less. Than what God's Word says and teaches, the Christian doctrine is not produced by the theologian. Now, this is the difference with the with the emergence and the progressives. Their doctrine is produced by them because they think biblical authority is what sets them free to be creative. Okay, no, that's not true at all. True biblical Christian doctrine is not produced by a theologian. All that the Christian theologian does is that he compiles the doctrinal statements contained in the Scripture and in the text in context, groups them under their proper heads, and arranges these doctrines in order of their relationship. Accordingly, objective theology as as is, as our Lutheran dogmaticians say, nothing else than Scripture itself arranged according to doctrines. Hence, all the parts that go to make up the body of doctrine— The least important, no less than the most important articles, must be based on Scripture. All theologians since the days of the apostles, says Luther, must confine themselves in their teaching to the teaching of the apostles. We are catechumens and pupils of the prophets, Luther says. Let us simply repeat and preach what we have heard and learned from the prophets and from the apostles. Luther enforces the demand uh, that the theologians simply repeat the words of the apostles after them with the solemn warning, neither ought any doctrine be taught or heard in the church but the pure word of God, that is to say the holy scriptures, otherwise accursed be both the teachers and the hearers together with their doctrine. The same truth is expressed in the well-known axiom, quod non est biblicum, Non est theologicum. That means if it's not in the Bible, it's not theology. Roseboro's loose translation. We continue. It follows that Christian theology is not made up of the variable notions and opinions of men, but is the immutable divine truth or God's own doctrine. Okay. Now, this is important. We're not set free by biblical authority to be creative when it comes to doctrine and theology and things like that. no. We we are bound by what God's word says and teaches. What the progressive said, it's the exact opposite. That's true. Okay, now for us, now this also means this has implications for what we heard yesterday. Uh, for instance, with Rick Warren's claims, oh my goodness, that the six steps of uh, God testing your faith—that is nowhere found in the Bible. Okay. That is a made-up notion, an opinion of one man, Rick Warren, and it's not Christian doctrine. So pastors and theologians are not given freedom to just make stuff up and to wing it. They they, They are bound to the Word of God and must only repeat and teach nothing more and nothing less than what the Scriptures say and teach. Okay, let me read the sentence. It follows that Christian theology is not made up of variable notions and opinions of men, but is the immutable divine truth of God's own doctrine. It has this quality because of the source from which it is drawn— According to the witness of Christ and his apostles and its own self-attestation in the hearts of Christians, Holy Scripture is God's infallible word, and therefore the doctrine taken from the Scriptures is not after the tradition of men, see Colossians 2.8. Not man's doctrine, but God's own doctrines, the the doctrine of of God our Savior, see Titus 2.10. And in God's church, nothing but God's own doctrine may be preached and heard. The door of the church is closed or should be closed to all doctrines that have been devised by men. This truth needs to be stressed in view of the contrary claims of modern, I would even say postmodern, theology. The moderns have nothing to offer but human doctrine. Refusing to accept Scripture as the Word of God, they have found it theologically unreliable and have substituted for it as the source of of doctrine the human heart and the theological ego and they insist that the church accept the results of their theological cogitations as the true theology they are virtually demanding that theology be removed from the realm of the objective divine truth into the sub- into the sphere of subjective human opinion Because of the insistent claims of modern theologians that the church is well served by this human theology, we shall have to insist that what the church needs is God's theology and that the theology, the doctrine drawn by the theologian, From the Scripture is divine doctrine, and this not merely in the sense that it tells of God and divine things, but particularly and primo loco in the sense that such doctrine, in contrast to all human doctrines, views, and judgments, is God's own doctrine, view, and judgment. Now, to illustrate, concerning the creation of the world and man. And the Christian the, the Christian theologian teaches what God has told him in Genesis 1 and 2 and elsewhere in the scripture. And so his doctrine is divine doctrine. When he is forced to take note of the stories told by human cosmologists, he rejects whatever does not agree with the biblical cosmology as nothing more than worthless human speculation. Fill in the blank here, Darwinian evolutionary theory. Concerning the fall and the nature of sin, uh, the Christian theologian must teach no more and no less than what God reports, pronounces, and teaches on this matter in Holy Scripture. He must here, too, take note of a great mass of human speculation on the origin of sin, its nature, and its consequences. But whatever is contrary to the teaching of Scripture, which cannot be broken... He rejects it at once as man's antithesis to God's own thesis. That's an interesting point of view. A true Christian theologian, when somebody says something that is contrary to God's word, you you can almost think of it in a Hegelian way, and here's how you think about it. Somebody who says something that contradicts God's word is preaching an antithesis. But God's word gives us the thesis, and there is no synthesis of the two. To synthesize the two is to create a, a full a new heresy, and that's what it is. Again, creativity is not the thing that matters. Fidelity to God's word is what matters. <sighs> um, the Christian theologian teaches only what God Himself teaches concerning these great things. These wonderful things never entered into the heart of man. They constitute a mystery which has been kept secret. Since the world began, but are now made manifest by the scriptures and the prophets by God himself. Therefore, the Christian theologian renounces all human speculations and insists that God alone be heard. Modern theology insists on the right of man to judge these matters and finds fault with the divine method of redemption, particularly with the substitutionary satisfaction of Christ as being too, well, juridical, and therefore refuses to teach it. However, this attempt to silence God's voice and suppress divine doc- the divine doctrine of redemption can have only one effect on the Christian theologian. He will more loudly, therefore, proclaim what the scriptures of the Old and New Testament teach, redemption through the vicarious and penal substitution of Christ. On this doctrine, the doctrine of justification before God, the Christian theologian teaches that man obtains the forgiveness of sins by faith, that is, through faith in, the, in Christ through the gospel, which forgives sins for the sake of Christ's atoning sacrifice without the law and without works of the law, that is, without demanding any moral quality in man or by any ethical achievement as contributing factors in his justification. Neither Rome's anathema nor the protest of degenerate modernist Protestantism, which rejects the divine mode of justification as too external and judicial, nor the antagonism of his own natural heart in which... Uh, the opinio leges in here's can induce the Christian theologian to change the scripture doctrine of justification, even though heaven and earth and whatever will not abide should sink to ruin. The Christian theologian as such is a realist. He knows from his own experience what the disquieted sinner needs. He realizes that a terrible thing, what a terrible thing it would be. If the terrified sinner who wants to know about the way of salvation had to rely on human opinions, the sinner wants absolutely reliable information on the question of justification. Therefore, nothing but God's own word and doctrine will serve him. And this applies to all parts of Christian doctrine, including the doctrines of eternal damnation and of eternal salvation. In short, the Christian theologian must teach only God's doctrine as set down in the Holy Scripture, God's book. He does not deal in human thoughts and human opinions. I thought that was rather appropriately, appropriate and well said. Be gone, you progressives, in emergence with your creativity and your subjective opinions that deny what Christ has done for us on the cross. You and your creativity can't even answer a straight question. What was the straight question you all fumbled on? What did God, what did God do in Christ that we couldn't do for ourselves? He died on the cross for our sins because each and every one of us you and me and the whole world included are by nature sinners and rebels against God. We, through our sinful, wretched rebellion against Him in thought, word, and deed, have earned eternal hell. And nothing, no human speculation, no human ideas, no creative theologies are going to give us the true gospel that we need to hear because. In the scriptures, God has given us a sure and certain word and hung it on Christ on the cross and proved it by raising him from the dead on the third day that sinners are justified in God by Christ through his death on the cross for their sins. You cannot be justified before God any other way than through Christ and his sacrifice, his penal substitution and vicarious death on the cross. That is the only theology that matters. And that's the one that all these progressives, all these legalists, all these other whatevers are constantly attacking and denying. Why? Because they are still unregenerate rebels against God and want to supplant true biblical doctrine, with their made-up, speculative, creative ideas, which do nothing but send sinners to hell because they stay in their sins. We're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash piratechristian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. When we come back. Sermon review time. Don't want to miss it.
1: Sisyoprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith.
2: This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. ye be listening to pirate christian radio
3: <laughs> Wipe out.
0: the spring and summer travel seasons are just around the corner and the last thing you want to do is pay more for your airfare hotel and rental car than you need to that's why pirate christian radio is proud to have cheap o air as one of our featured advertisers Cheapo Air has over 18 million flight deals, low airfare guarantees, and 85,000 negotiated hotel rates around the globe. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Write down the promo code... Click on the web banner and book your spring or summer travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That web address again is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Thank you for your support. Okay, we're back hour number two of fighting for the faith before we get into our sermon review I want to read to you this op-ed piece from Al Muller it's really not too long and it makes a really good point especially going into this sermon I'll explain the deficiencies of the sermon before we get into it but I want to read this first Okay, Dr. Al Mohler writes, the name of it is, Of first importance, the cross and the resurrection of the center. The Christian faith is not a mere collection of doctrines or a bag of truths. Christianity is a comprehensive truth claim <clears throat> excuse me, that encompasses every aspect of revealed doctrine. But it is centered in the gospel of Jesus Christ and, as the apostolic preaching makes clear, the gospel is the priority. The Apostle Paul affirms this priority when he writes to the Christians in Corinth. In the opening verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul sets out his case. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you were being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it, is, it was I or they... So we preach, and so you believed. Paul points directly to the events of the cross and resurrection of Christ. He is not concerned with just any gospel but with the only gospel that saves. This is the gospel I preach to you, Paul reminds the Corinthians. The same Paul who so forcefully warned the Galatians against accepting any false gospel reminds the church at Corinth that the very gospel I preach to you is the gospel by which you are being saved. Their stewardship of the gospel is underlined in Paul's words, if you hold fast to the word that I preach to you. Paul's Statement of priority is a vital corrective for our confused times. Without hesitation, Paul writes with urgency about the truths that are as of first importance. All revealed truth is vital, invaluable, life-changing truth to which every disciple of Christ is fully accountable, but certain truths are of highest importance, and that is the language Paul uses without qualification. And what is of first importance? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And then he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. The cross and the empty tomb stand at the center of the Christian faith. Without these, there is no good news, there is no salvation. Paul gets right to the heart of the matter in setting out these, those truths that are of first importance. Following his example, we can do no less. These twin truths remain as the first importance, and no sermon is complete without the explicit affirmation of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it was then, so it is now, and so it ever shall be until Christ comes to claim his church. As Paul reminded the Corinthians and now instructs us, the gospel is at the center of our faith, and the cross and the empty tomb are at the center of the gospel. And so we preach, and so you believe, Paul encourages us. May the power of the cross and the victory of the empty tomb fill every pulpit, every pew, and every Christian heart. And may the good news of the gospel be received with joy by sinners, And uh, with that, it's time for us to dive into our sermon review. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Our sermon today comes to us via the Voyage Church in Gilbert, Arizona. Pastor, Pastor Jeremy Harper. And uh, um, the name of the sermon series is I Love the 80s. And um, it's called the sermon itself is called the MacGyver plan. Now I grew up in the '80s, and um, you know I remember when songs like this were new. too much talk. This song is not a rebel song. This song
1: is someday, bloody someday.
0: Who can forget this one? Now, some of you are thinking you're cheating. Chris, that, that last song came out in 1979. I get it, but I listened to it all through the 80s. enough of that. Anyway, you get the point. By the way, that's all from my personal collection. So, you know, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s and I I loved the 80s. I had the feathered hair thing going on <laughs> and, you know, the Duran Duran kind of skinny tie thing uh, you know, I did it. I I wore parachute pants. I had bandanas tied around my leg. I um you get the pit you get the drift, okay? So, you know, I love the 80s, but uh by the way, um uh, the, the And, you know, MacGyver, you know, listen, I thought he was cool. And I didn't even realize that his hairdo had a name. I did not know that a mullet was what you call that thing. I just thought it looked like skunkhead. But that's, um, anyway, so today's sermon is the, I love the 80s, the MacGyver plan. And, uh, you know, I was feeling kind of reminiscent. And I just thought I'd pull this up. And, well, here's the deal. As you're listening to this sermon, pay real close attention to when he gets into the scripture about Jesus and his prayer in the garden. Okay? What I just read to you from Dr. Muller about Christ and him crucified for our sins and raised again on the third day for our justification as being the center and heart of the gospel. See if you hear that or if you hear something. Akin to what Rick Warren did yesterday when he said, how did he put it? Um, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, he can raise your dead marriage or he can raise your dead dream. From Yeah, anyway, here's uh, the MacGyver plan.
1: Man, I love the 80s. Uh, I love them. And it's funny, I've been ripped on as we've been getting prepared for this series in this message, uh, man, they've been ripping. The '80s is horrible. You know, the clothes is horrible. You know, the, the the music is horrible. And I absolutely love the '80s, man. I love it. I love I love the games uh, from the '80s. Remember the Rubik's Cube? Uh, did you guys ever have the Rubik's Cube? Yeah, I remember, I mean, everybody had a Rubik's Cube, and and no one could. Did could anybody complete that? You liars! you in- I could complete it. I when I was in high school, um, yeah, I could
0: complete the Rubik's Cube. I think my best time was like. Um, A minute thirty six. But I have friends who could do a lot quicker than that. Anyway, my son, funny enough, kind of had that same nerdy tendency. There was a resurgence in Rubik's cubes.
1: Yeah, just recently. Anyway, let's continue. You're in church. You are in church. I never, I couldn't do I, You know, I would peel the little stickers off. <laughs> did you ever do that? And then you'd try to put them back on and trick somebody, but you weren't fooling, They were all like crooked. So, you know, you yeah, had like a ghetto cube, uh, and nobody, but, but I, you know, the games and Hungry, Hungry Hippo and Mario Brothers and Pac-Man and Miss Pac-Man and then the fashion from the 80s. It was awesome. Remember the hair. Did, did anybody, anybody have the fashion of the 80s hair? Do we have that, guys? No, well, that's, uh, that's different strokes. Hey, but different strokes. I love the TV show. And, and Arnold, remember, remember Arnold? What was his catchphrase that he always said? What you talking about, Willis? Every service. What you talking about, Willis? Man, I must have drove my mom nuts because we went around saying that all the time. What you, talk? you know, about? And my mom, Jeremy, you need to get in and clean your room. What you talking about, mama? You know, and just, I'm sure we just drove her absolutely
0: nuts. So, and, and, and so. Keep in mind, this is the sermon over there at the Voyage Church.
1: So there's different strokes of TV shows. You had Silver Spoons. I don't know if anybody remembers Silver Spoons or Family Ties, the Cosby show. I mean, the 80s was awesome. And then MacGyver. We got MacGyver. Look at MacGyver. No, MacGyver was the man. Look at that mullet. I mean, you got to be the man. MacGyver was was incredible. I mean, this guy, if you didn't watch MacGyver, this guy would always get, you know, himself in trouble and the bad guys would get him and they'd put him in a room and there was no way out, you know, and they had plans to kill him later, which I don't know why they didn't just kill him then, but they were always going to kill him later and he would find anything. And he would turn it into a weapon and get out of there. I mean, flip-flops and some meatballs. he turned turn it into a missile. I mean, the guy was bad to the bone. And so MacGyver was 80s television. And what we wanted to do in the spirit of this series, we wanted to pay tribute to MacGyver and what he did for 80s television. So watch the screen. <laughs>
0: Just want to remind you, this is the sermon there at the Voyage Church.
3: Hey there, MacGyver, you're my hero number one. You're morally opposed to guns, but not to explosions from crude bombs made by you.
0: Maybe this is the uh, praise and worship time.
3: Silly buddy toothpicks and some blue. that's what you do. Hey there, MacGyver, you stopped an acid leak with chocolate because it contains sucrose C12H22, which we all know is a disaccharide, which neutralizes acid. You make it so hard to remain placid. I speak for the masses. And oh, the clever gadgetry, you know, escapes like Houdini. And oh, your Obama code that mullet, how it gleams! Mullet, how it gleams! Hey there, MacGyver! I still don't know how you escaped that cage surrounded by four gunmen in a flaming lava cave with rats swarming around, and you were hanging upside down, twelve rabbit hounds. Hey there, MacGyver! Yeah, you really are the dude can take fishing line a piece of twine and build a rubik's cube that speaks to whales mr t and james bond they just pale you never fail and oh the clever gadgetry you know escapes like houdini To save the day, a pocket knife, some great duct tape When things look bad, you always found a way Some chewing gum, a ball of string Man, you make bombs from anything Why don't villains kill you right away? Or put you in an empty room Make sure the paper clips are removed So you can not build a laser to escape Cause you're so amazed No new episodes to view Seven seasons left on DVD I can't believe you're through You took a break When things were really getting great Right through my heart you drove a stake Hey there MacGyver, how Stargate I've heard it second rate
0: And oh,
3: the clever gadgetry
0: yeah, I, I do think this is praise and worship time officially there at the Voyage.
3: You know, like And oh, your coat oh, that mullet how it gleans, bullet how it gleans.
1: They do a good job. (laughs) MacGyver was the man. I mean, it did not matter. He always, when he was in a difficult situation, he always had a plan. It never failed. He always got out of it. It always worked. Uh, Uh, By the way, I
0: mean, seriously, I hate to even make this connection. Um, You want to talk about an escape? Take a look at that guy, Jesus. Uh, They killed him. They murdered him. On a cross and on the third day, even without clever gadget tree and gizmo's paper clips and homemade lasers, he was able to escape death. Rose again from the grave victorious. You know, just saying
1: uh, I wish my life was like MacGyver's, uh but, but my plans never worked. I never get when I'm in a difficult situation. It never works. And then sometimes I, you know, I'll pray and I'll go to God and say, God, I don't want to be in this situation anymore. Uh, this is really hard. This is really difficult. Hey, could you help me out here? This is what I want. And then nothing happens. Jack, squat, nada. And it's so frustrating. It's like because it's got here in me on my what? This is about
0: getting what you want from God. Is God your MacGyver
1: sugar daddy? (laughs) Prayers. And it's just very, very frustrating for me. And, and some of you, yeah, I think you know what you're talking, what I'm talking about. Because see, it doesn't matter where you are on the spiritual journey. Whether you're over here, where you're like, no, I'm still kind of kicking the tires a little bit, checking out this Christianity thing, and I'm not not quite sure if I'm ready to make a commitment. Or you're somewhere in the middle over here. Yeah, I've been following Christ for a while. Or you're way over here. You're an old timer, and you've been doing it forever. It doesn't matter where you are, whether you are a believer in Christ or not. That all of us at some point have been in a sticky situation where we had nowhere else to turn, and we got on our knees and said, God. Can you help me out here? And then nothing happened. And that's frustrating. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you students have gone in to take an exam, and you completely forgot about the exam. And you had every intention on studying. And you had every intention on joining you know, that study group. And you had every intention on going to the tutoring. But you walked in there like, oh, my goodness, it's test day. And you start sweating. So now you start coming up with a plan. Well, shoot, well, it's may, may, well, usually true or false? And I'm feeling lucky, so I think I can get 65 70% out of this bad boy. And then they give you the test, and it's fill in the blank. You're like, oh, no, now I'm really going to look stupid. So you start looking around, start thinking, what am I going to do? And you look over, and, yeah, yeah, he looks dumber than I am. So you can't cheat off the guy next to you. And so you're stressing out. And so you did one of those prayers. You say, hey, hey, God, big fella. <laughs> you know, it's kind of been a while, but uh, if you could maybe all the information that they were talking about when I was sleeping in class, if you could somehow just stick it in my head a little bit and like, give me a good enough grace I can pass the test, I'd appreciate it. And you pray that prayer. And then you get your test back and you bomb bad, like 24 or something like that. And so some of you know, some of you have been driving down the freeway and you've gone to God. You're driving down the freeway, you're late for work, you look over there and the gaslight's on. And you start, you start panicking. And now all of us know that when the gaslight comes on, they, you know, you got a while. You can still drive with a gaslight. The problem was you were playing, how long can I drive on E yesterday? And you forgot to get gas. And now you're driving down the freeway and you're like, oh no, what am I going to do? This is the setup for the problem. I can't wait to hear what the solution
0: is. So the problem is is that you you've been well, isn't it the seeker driven purpose driven guys who're telling everybody to live on the
1: edge, you know, live dangerously, live uh... <clears throat> And this is like three miles to the next exit. And so you did one of these. You said, "God, <laughs> I know I told you that was the last time I was going to do it last week, but I promise you, if you could get me out of this, if you could maybe just just throw a little extra gas in the tank or something like that, just help me get to the next exit, that'd be awesome." And then your car dies, and you're walking down the shore, shoulder of the road carrying that little, you know, that little red can that we all have, and you're thinking, "God, what happened? I asked you. I asked for your help. I wanted help. Where are you at?" Some of you, is a little bit more serious. Some of you, maybe, maybe it's a financial thing. Maybe it's as you started getting letters in the mail, you got behind payments on your house, and you're thinking, oh, what am I going to do? And, you know, you, you were relying on the bonuses to come in that were going to help pay the bills, and, and they're not coming in, and you didn't know what to do, so you went to God and said, God, listen, man, I, I, I need your help. If you could maybe send some business my way. I'm not asking for a, a hand-me-down, you know, and I'm not asking to be rich. If you could just send some business my way so I can catch up on my bills so we don't lose our house. I appreciate it and no business comes in fact it actually goes the other way and then you end up losing your house you're like god where were you what happened i prayed i asked you i told you what i wanted and you weren't there some of you maybe you went to a doctor and just you know routine checkup and you walked in and and you went in there and and then the doctor you know she found something like you know what this is this concerns me i think you need to go i think you need to go have some more tests and so, so you go down to the hospital to have some more tests, and they, they run all sorts of tests on you to find out exactly what it is. And while you're waiting for the answers from the test, you found the little chapel in the hospital. And so you went over to the chapel and kind of walked in and had those long pews, you know, those old school pews, and maybe kind of sat down a little bit, and it was really quiet. And you said, God, I'm, I'm too young to have something like this. Going on, if, if, I, I read in Scripture all the time that you did all these miracles and you healed all these bodies. Uh, if you could do it maybe just one more time. Kill mine because I, I don't, I don't want to have this. I don't want to live with this. And then you get the test back and they come back positive. Like God, what happened? I prayed, you know, I, I, I thought I did what I was supposed to do. I went to you and they still came back positive. What do you do with that?
0: Yeah, I, am real uh, curious. I mean, did they pray wrong? Did they forget to, um, you know, pray in the proper direction uh, bow low enough. Maybe they were standing up when they should have been on their knees. What
1: is this? Maybe you're here today, and you got some kind of broken heart. You're just—it's just heavy. It's just dark all around you, and and, and it's, it's a struggle because you look at it, and the reason that you got a heavy heart is something that could have been prevented. In fact, you saw it coming. In fact, you went to God and you said, "God, listen, that something's going on. I know you see it because you're God and you're everywhere. If if you could stop this, if you could maybe jump in and intervene, because if this happens," It's going to destroy my family, destroy my life. It's going to be devastating. And you prayed, and it didn't seem like you did anything. Nothing happened. And it ended up just being a hard time. You're here today, and you feel brokenhearted. You know, and, and that is so hard because when that happens, you start. So this is apparently the gospel for
0: those who've experienced life little upsets. I, You know, I don't know what to make of this. What about the gospel for those who are sinners?
1: Questioning. And you start asking the, well, where was God? Or what am I supposed to do? Or why is, is he not hearing me? Am I not praying right? How do I pray? Because this doesn't seem to be working. What do I need to say when I'm in a difficult situation and I got to go to God? What exactly do I say? Well, I want to look at uh, a passage of scripture today. I want to look at the life of Christ, and if you've got your Bible, I want to read out of the, the book of Mark, second, second Bible, in the, uh, second book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, chapter fourteen, and I want to look at Jesus as, as he was in a difficult situation. He was in a situation where he got down on his knees and he cried out to God, just like many of us I have, and said, "You know what, God, I need your help." And he prayed a prayer. The story from Mark fourteen is
0: um, Jesus in the garden praying. Right before he's betrayed by Judas and arrested and then crucified. In other words, we're in the gospel narrative of Mark here, and this is all part of Christ's passion. When we talk about Christ's passion, we talk about his suffering, bitter sufferings and death on the cross his scourging, his flogging, his beating, his trial before uh, the Jews and before Pontius Pilate, his beard being plucked out. Uh, I mean, all of this stuff. And what again? This is a difficult time that Jesus was going through. Hello, he's he's getting
1: ready to die on the cross for your sins, <sighs> and it's something significant in the way that he prayed that prayer. That's incredible, and it's key for us. And we can model our lives after the way that he prayed. And so I want to.
0: Oh, no. So Jesus's prayer in the garden is some. You know, he was having a tough time. He, you know, he's facing some. You know, it's kind of challenging moments there. But we can model our. Uh, we can model that prayer in our own lives. Talk about missing the
1: point. A look at that. Be Matthew chapter 14. If you don't have your Bible, don't sweat it. We will have the scripture behind me. Let me kind of set what's going on at this point. This is, this is close to the end of Jesus' life. He has been uh, doing ministry at the age of thirty. He started his ministry, and for three years, you know, he went around telling people that you know is the Son of God, salvation comes through him, and he was healing blind eyes, and he was healing you know sick people. He was walking on water, bringing people out of the grave. I mean, he did all this stuff, and his ministry went on for three years. Now it's starting to wind down. He knows that the end. It's coming. And so he's had his last supper and he's got all his guys. And some of you have seen the painting. Maybe grandma has a painting of the last supper at the house where they're all sitting around and they're eating. And he's he's saying, listen, guys, my time is coming. This is it. The reason I came is now. It's, It's to give my life on the cross. And he's saying, remember me, though. Remember what I did here. Go tell everybody. Remember me. And so he just had this supper. And then on top of that, he just had this conversation with Peter. Where Peter, he's saying, you know, guys, I'm coming to get my life. And Peter, his clo- one of his closest friends, is like, no, 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 no. That's not going to happen. You know, I, you know, I'll die for you, Peter. And Jesus, listen, buddy. I love you. But uh listen to me three times before tomorrow morning, before the rooster crows, that you're actually going to tell people you don't know me because you're scared for your own life. It's, no, that will never happen. And, of course, Comes true, and Peter denies him three times. So, all of this has taken place, and now Jesus is coming to the end of his life. And so, you can imagine that's pretty dark, heavy, and a hard time for him. So, uh,
0: Peter hasn't denied Jesus at this
1: point in the narrative. I don't think this guy knows his Bible. So, we're gonna pick up in verse 32. I said, if you don't have your Bible, we'll have that behind me. This is Mark chapter 14, verse 32. We're moving towards the end of Jesus' life. This is what he says. He says, They went into the olive grove called Gethsemane, and Jesus said, He said, Sit here while I go and pray. Everybody say Gethsemane. Gethsemane. Sound like Gethsemane uh, Sam. Um, Don't you hate it when those guys do that? Everyone say Gethsemane.
0: Everyone turn to your neighbor and say, uh, It's not about you. I just. Well, I mean, how does this help at all? Everyone turn to your neighbor
1: and say, Gethsemane. Sorry, I didn't. That wasn't in my notes. I don't know where that came from. Uh, Gethsemane is Hebrew for oil press, so you know it, it was it was what we what we know is that this was a favorite place for Jesus to hang out. And so there was trees there, the olive trees there, and this is where where he liked to go. You know, and, and I thought about this. I, it wouldn't be my favorite place because I will eat pretty much anything, but I think olives are nasty. I mean, it's just they just they stink and they got that like. Uh, you're not in the
0: story there, um, buddy. Um, yeah, Jeremy, Uh, Jeremy, you're not in this story. Whether or not you like olives or don't like olives, who cares? This is a story about what Christ has done for us. This is on the Thursday night before he's crucified. And you're basically saying, you know, I don't know if I like olives. Talk about meaningless information.
1: Red noodle eye that stares at you the whole time is just, you know, that and celery, too. I, I, I don't know. My mom used to try to trick us, and they put, like, cheese or peanut butter on the celery, and yeah, we'd just lick it off. And so do you like oysters on the half shell? Who cares? Not falling for that, Mom. But but this was this was his place. This is where Jesus wanted to go hang out. This is where he hung out with his boys. His time's coming. Obviously he's he's stressful. It's it's heavy on his heart. And so they go to his spot. They go to Gethsemane. Verse
0: thirty three. You know because you know Jesus really like you know that was his favorite place to kick it. Yeah you know Jesus yeah, I mean. Some guys, they have their favorite bars. Other guys, you know, they got their favorite friends' houses or, you know, a place that they just, where they like to, you know, this is their, Jesus was, it was Gethsemane.
1: says, then he took Peter and he took James and John with him and he became deeply troubled and distressed. says he took Peter, James, and John. These were his inner circle. These were his, you know, he had his his 12 disciples. Now it was down to 11 by the time they got to the garden. Uh, But he had his 11 boys. But there was three that he was really, really close to, Peter, James, and John. And you see this at at another time. There was another time when Jesus was on his ministry trail and crowds were following around him. And the synagogue ruler, this church leader, comes running up and says, Jesus, my daughter's about to die. If you don't do something, my daughter is going to pass. She's very, very sick. And before Jesus gets a uh, a chance to make it to the house, some of the guys, uh, friends, come running up and say, you know what, don't even bother Jesus anymore because the girl died she's dead. Don't even bother coming, Jesus. And Jesus said, no, "I'm still going to go." He says, "Peter, James, John, you got everybody else stay here. You guys come with me." So you th- you see through scripture that there are times where he took Peter, James, and John cuz you know he loved all of them. I mean, he loved all of them the same, but these were his closest friends. And you can understand that. There are times when, when you are in a difficult situation where it's just heavy, maybe some dark seasons in your life where you, you know, you've got tons of friends, but when it's really coming down, there's just a few people that you want around you. You want those people close to you, those people that you trust. Jesus one of these guys. He's a Peter, James, and John. The rest of you guys stay here. I'm gonna go a little bit further into the garden. And he brings them with him. This is what he says. Look at verse 34. It says, then he told them, guys, my soul was crushed with grief. It's to the point of death. He says, stay here and keep watch over me. He told them my soul was crushed with grief. Why was the soul crushed with grief? Well, man, several reasons. One, he was about to face a horrible death. I mean, he knew what was coming. He knew that he was about to be arrested. He knew uh, that they were going to come, they were going to grab him and, and take him off. He knew that they were going to beat him. He knew that they were going to pull his beard. He knew that they were going to take off his clothes and they were going to whip him to the point where you wouldn't even be able to recognize his body. He knew they were going to put a crown of thorns on his head and push him in to the point where it's in his skull. He knew that they were going to take him to a cross, hang him on a cross and nail nails through his arms and through his feet. He knew that was coming. And what
0: was that for why was jesus going to die what did it accomplish what did it mean
1: and you know just because he was the son of god didn't exempt him from pain he knew that it was coming so obviously he was full of grief and then on top of that he was carrying all the all the sins of the world He was taking on that burden. All the sins of that day, all the sins that that we've done. Okay, this is
0: technically the gospel, kind of.
1: And all the sins that are going to come, all the horrible, rotten, evil things that we hope no one ever finds out about, all the things that we've done, he died right there, and he took them all upon himself at that time. And he knew that was coming. So from a spiritual side of it, he was deeply moved. He was grieved. He was hurting. And he tells the guys, listen, this is what I'm feeling. My soul is crushed with grief. In the verse 35, and here's where we get to the prayer part. And guys, grab a hold of this. This is, this is sweet right here. Verse 35. He says, he went on a little further. He says, then he fell to the ground. He said, he prayed that, that if it was possible that this awful hour awaiting him might pass by. And then he speaks to God. He says, Abba, Father. He cried out. Everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. And then he says, yet I want your will to be done. Not mine. And he says Abba. Abba is, a, a, is an Aramaic word. Uh, you know, when when they taught. When, Aramaic? Aramaic. When they read scripture in, in the temple, you know, it was always in Hebrew. But when they had conversations outside of the church, it was in Aramaic. And Abba was was a word that the Jewish kids would use to talk to their biological parents. Like like mommy or daddy. And, you know, they were used to hearing father because, you know, God the father. I mean, they, they, would, they would hear that. But he was saying Abba. And it just shows that unique relationship that Jesus had as the son of God with his daddy. He says, daddy, father, and he cries out to him. He says, everything's possible with you. He says, you are the creator of the heavens and the earth. Everything's possible. You could stop this. You could take this away from me. And he says, if you could take this cup from me. Cup represented uh, pain. It represented uh, some kind of grief. It represented the wrath of God. And he's saying, listen, if you could take this from me, if there's any possible way that you could take this from me, would you do it? And then here it is. Here's the key. You hear his heart. You see a prayer of trust. He says, yet above all that, I want your will to be done and not mine. Not what I want what you want. He says, I know what's coming. He said, I, I know that I'm going to have to die on the cross and I know the reason I came here, you know, and I know that I'm going to hang up on that cross and be humiliated and people are going to look at me and it's, it's just going to be a gruesome, gruesome death. And he says, I wish and I want if there's any possible way for you to take this from me, if there's any possible way for me to complete the mission without having to go through this, I believe that you could do it and I want you to do it. But then he says, despite all that, it's it's not what I want. It's what you want. He does a prayer, a prayer of faith, not what I want. If, if you've been off somewhere, come back to me just for a second. Here's a key to your prayer. Ask God what you want. Tell him, hey, this is, this is what's going on. But, but God, it's not what I want. It's what you want. God, I don't want this this sickness in my body anymore. God, I don't want to lose my home. God, I don't want uh, to lose my job. God, I don't want to carry this hurt anymore. God, I don't want to lose this relationship. God, I don't want this pain anymore. But God, I trust you. It's not what I want. It's what you want.
0: So you've basically have stripped this thing of its real historical meaning and now it's just a model prayer that we can apply to our lives.
1: You know, uh Thanksgiving is coming up and uh well, I'm fired up about Thanksgiving. Is absolutely my favorite holiday. It's always been my favorite holiday. I know some people love Christmas. Some people love Easter. I love Thanksgiving. I mean, what other holiday are you encouraged to eat until it hurts and then not move for days? I mean, that is a – So let me see if
0: I have this right. The reason why you love Thanksgiving is because of the gluttony.
1: All right, got it. a great holiday, and, and I, I've been preparing for it. I've been getting ready. I haven't done a whole lot of exercising in the past month. Uh, in fact, I haven't done a whole lot of moving in the last couple of weeks, and so I mean, I'm getting my body ready. I didn't want to shock it. I'm going home for Texas uh, for Thanksgiving. I'm not taking any jeans; it's, it's sweatpants all the time. I mean, just I need room to grow. Maybe my wife's maternity pants or something like that. But I am ready to, to, to tear in that food, and I absolutely just love Thanksgiving. It's always, <laughs> it's always been my favorite, favorite holiday, um, and you know, but it was always uh, for a while through most of my 20s. It was also kind of a struggle for me too. You know, because I, I wanted deeply uh, to get married. Oh, I had a desire to have a wife. What?
0: So all of this was to, okay, you, you've you gleaned this, you've basically poured out all of the gospel significance of Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed. Right before he goes to the cross, You poured all that out on the ground, turned it into a model prayer, And see, now you're going to show us how you have applied this model prayer to your own life so that you
1: can get the goods from God. Wow. You know, both my younger sisters were married, and they had you know kids running around. So I had nephews and nieces running around, and and uh, you know then my you know, parents obviously were remarried, and so they were together. And so it was always really hard for me. I mean, I love picking them up and throwing the kids in the air, you know, and and, and all that good stuff. And I just love Thanksgiving. But there was that part of me that when we start taking the pictures, the family pictures and stuff, there's that part of me that's always kind of breaking on the inside. Because like, man, I want a family of my own. <laughs> God, what's going on? I'm almost thirty. I and mean, there's something about when, when you hit 30 and you're still single, you kind of, people kind of look at you that kind of look like, I wonder what's wrong with this guy. You know, it's, it's I don't know what it is, but that that three oh. and, you know, and I was getting there and all my friends were married. I was like, one of the last single ones and I remember laying in my bed in my apartment and I was just like, God, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to be single. I want to share my life with somebody. I need you to help me here. You know, and... Eventually he did. And I'm not saying it happened right away. It wasn't. It wasn't a right. Now, didn't you kind of miss the
0: punchline here? I mean, remember, you've taken Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, you poured out all of the gospel significance of that prayer, turned it into a model prayer that we're supposed to apply to our own lives. Here you you're supposed to hold. You're holding yourself up as the model of the guy who got the biblical principle and applied it to your own life. Isn't the punchline where you said? You know, God, I'm really miserable without having a wife. I really want to get married. It kind of stinks that I'm all here by myself, all alone. But then I prayed, but not my will, but your will. And God went, oh, he gets it. Ding! So I'm going to send him a wife. So that's the secret to how to get you what you want from God. Uh, why do I feel like this is coming?
1: away deal but eventually he brought jamie into my life and and we got married and we have a daughter that's coming here in a couple of months or so i'm super super pumped about that but i remember that i had to pray that prayer i had to pray that prayer because i didn't know if he was ever going to send anybody
0: yeah it's um yeah it's not like you telegraphed that punch or anything and i had to say
1: god i don't want to be lonely anymore because this is brutal and it hurts But I trust you. And ultimately, above all, it's not what I want. It's what you want. Uh, Yes, see,
0: there's the secret formula to getting what you want from God. God's up there in heaven with his arms folded, just waiting for you to bare your soul and tell him all the things that you want. But until you say the magic words, but God, I know that I've, I've been diagnosed with cancer in my left foot and that they're going to have to amputate my leg. But not my will. But your will be done, Lord. God hears the prayer and saves the foot. But see, if you prayed the other way and you said, Lord, I know I have cancer in my foot and the doctor has said they're going to amputate... My leg. But God, you know I need my leg. I can't have my leg amputated. God, don't you hear me? God's up there going, nope, nope, you're not praying right. I'm not going to give you what you need here. Until you say the magic words, not my will, but your will be done, then I'm not going to bless you and answer your prayer. See, that's the MacGyver plan. See,
1: (sighs) I just had to give him. And that's a tough prayer. That is a tough prayer, a prayer of trust. But listen, it eliminates all the, well, how do I pray? Is he hearing me? Am I praying right? All that stuff, it brings a sense of peace when you just say, God, I don't want this. I don't, this doesn't feel good, but I trust you. It's not what I want, but what you want. Listen, I don't know the situation you're going through today. Some of you I know, some of you I don't know very well. You may have carried some heavy stuff in here today. I want to encourage you today. Take it to him, air it out with him. Jesus did. Jesus told him, he said, I don't want that to face this. Get alone and say, you know what? I don't want to face this. I don't want to go through this anymore. I don't want this. And he may take it away. I don't know what he's going to do. But when you end your prayer, end it with the heart of total and complete trust. Say, God, ultimately it's not what I want, but it's what you want. Let me pray for you. God, I thank you for everything. Single- That's it?
0: That's the MacGyver plan? Oh, man. Talk about a mangling of scripture. All right. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Let's read this thing the way it's supposed to be read. A little bit of uh, context here. Let's go ahead um, and we're going to read starting at verse 1. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. Now, I always laugh when I read this passage, and I'll tell you why. Here, Jesus is in Bethany in, in the house of Simon the leper. If you really want to be technical, the way this should, be, should read is, is in the house of uh, si, uh, Simon the former leper. Um, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, a pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. Apparently the Marxist fascists were alive even back then. And they scolded her, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always will have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can go and do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest in order to betray him. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, that's an important point. Jesus is our Passover lamb. His disciples said to him, "'Where will you have us go to prepare for you to eat the Passover?' And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, "'Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. "'Follow him.'" And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went into the city and found it just as Jesus had told them and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the 12 and as they were reclining at the table eating, Jesus said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me "'one who is eating with me.' "'They began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, "'Is it I, Lord?' "'And he said to them, "'It is the one of the twelve, one is "'the one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. "'For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, "'but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. "'It would have been better for that man "'if he had not been born.' "'And then as they were eating, he took bread, "'and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them "'and said, "'Take, this is my body.' but after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, P- Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to him, Are you asleep? still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man, seize him and lead him away under guard. And when they came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him, and they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching you, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled, and they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth around his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And when they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And there he was sitting with the guards and warming himself with the fire. Now the chief priest and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. You see what's going on here? When you put this story back into context, it's not about a model prayer that you're supposed to pray that would make God go, ooh, 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 okay, now I can answer that prayer. No. But it does show you proper attitude towards god not my will but your will but the way pastor jeremy preached it not jeremy rody but jeremy uh, harper is that if you say the magic words not my will but your will be done ding then you can get your will you see how the secret works this his sermon was all about how to have your will how do you get your will? How do you get what you want? How do you get God to answer your prayer in your favor in the way that you want it answered? You have to approach it in this particular way, follow this formula, and say these words, and then God will think, oh, wow, now I can answer his prayer. Let's see, the very prayer that Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done, was not prayed so that Jesus could get what he wanted. Because Jesus did go to the cross. He did suffer and die and was scourged and flogged, beaten, crucified, with a crown of thorns pressed into his skull. That's how it ended for Jesus. And that end was for your sins and for your forgiveness. The story of the gospel is all about the story of forgiveness of sins let's flip back just a little bit. Go to Mark chapter two. I want to point a couple of things out to you. When, and it says this, and when Jesus returned to Capernaum, Mark chapter two, verse one, I want to show you something. After some days, it was reported that he was at home. This is Jesus' home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And as he was preaching the word to them, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Let me read that again. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins except for God alone? And immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they thus question within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them so that there were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Stop for a second. This point is lost on a lot of people. Jesus has just announced that he has the authority to forgive sins by healing this paralytic. Everybody who was there to hear Jesus teach, they were all, for the most part, healthy people, young and old alike. Those people who were indoors were hearing Jesus and they were your general run-of-the-mill average citizens. They weren't paralytics. They weren't lepers. They weren't blind. They didn't need Jesus to heal them of a physical ailment. But here Jesus is offering something and proclaiming something that applies to every single one of them, regardless of whether or not they have a physical ailment or whether they're possessed by a demon or blind or mute or dumb or dead. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins, I say to you, take up your mat and walk. I don't need for Jesus to heal me so I can walk. But I sure do need him to forgive my sins. And so do you. You see, the healing there was to announce and declare to everyone within earshot that Jesus Christ forgives sins. And it's all based on his coming death on the cross. Mark 2.15 This is why Jesus hung out with sinners. As Jesus reclined at table in his house, in his own house, listen to this, Jesus was reclining at the table in his own house in Capernaum. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. The scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus heard it. He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician. Those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners. Are you a sinner? Have you transgressed God's law? If you're not sure, check the Ten Commandments. Do you love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength every hour, every minute, every second of every day? Do you have no other gods except for God alone? Or are you an idolater, putting your faith and trust in other things money, power, wealth? Have you been in obeying your parents and the authorities over you? Have you lied? Cheated, coveted, stolen, committed adultery. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call and save, seek and save sinners. Sinners like you and like me. This is the good news. I'm not going to tell you about Things that you can do to manipulate God so that you can get your way. So that ultimately you can trick God into believing that you're sincere enough so that you can have your will and not his. God doesn't work that way. This MacGyver plans a load of garbage. But the plan of salvation laid out in scriptures, your justification as a gift won by Christ on the cross, by dying on the cross for all of your sins and propitiating God's wrath through his blood. That's for sinners like you and like me. Anybody who's righteous need not apply. But Jesus made it clear he has authority to forgive sins. Do you need your sins forgiven? Jesus died for them. Repent of your wickedness and be forgiven. Believe the gospel. Trust Christ. He can forgive sins by the power of his death on the cross and the mighty power that raised him from the grave on the third day. For your justification and mine. That's the biblical gospel. I care less about the MacGyver plan. I'm going with the Jesus plan. And you be wise, repent, and do the same. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. You can support us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. There are two yellow buttons right there on the homepage. One says join our crew. The other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute a mere six dollars and ninety-five cents a month to Fighting for the Faith in Pirate Christian Radio. And once we get to a thousand listeners, then we know on a monthly basis we're able to pay the minimum of our bills. So that's important. It's really, really important. And of course, if you'd like to uh send in a contribution of your own choosing, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you could make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box five zero eight. Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six zero three eight. So, what'd you think? Would love to get your feedback. My email address is talkback at or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Christ Jesus and his death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.